Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard Podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. If you've been in the hobby for more than a day, then you know how fast the sports card market moves. There are no more options than ever to buy, sell, and research your cards. One of the most frustrating hurdles in the hobby is the fees when selling your cards. You know, those other popular marketplaces, the ones with their average seller transaction fee of 10%, the ones that don't have the seller's interest in mind. Wait, what? Who would do that? Well, hold on to your horses. No, not those horses. Welcome to The Card Flip, a place where we want to provide a simple alternative to buying and selling cards. No clutter, just you, graded cards, sealed wax, and the easiest of transactions. So what do you say? Are you in? Great! Welcome to The Card Flip, the seller's marketplace. Yo and hello everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. I'm your host, Mike Moynihan, just like every week, you know, other drill. Welcome to another show. I'm really excited about today's show. I've got a guest on today that, quite frankly, I've known forever <laughs> in the hobby, and yet, uh, luckily, I've been blessed to meet him recently at the Dallas Card Show. He was kind enough to invite me to a, a content creator's dinner that we had at the Dallas Card Show. As part of that, he kind of spearheaded that, and it's Dr. James Beckett. If you've been in the hobby at all for any length of time, you know who Dr. Beckett is, his influence on the hobby and his legacy within the hobby uh, is tremendous. And for a lot of us, I remember as a kid, my favorite day of the month was getting my Beckett baseball card monthly, which he will readily admit is a product of what a great team he had and how many great writers and all the contributors that made that the great magazine that all of us young collectors enjoyed getting in the 80s and throughout the 90s and 2000s and still today even. But I want to talk to Dr. Beckett about his journey and and ask him a bunch of questions and just talk the hobby with him because he's such a wealth of knowledge. So let's bring him on now. Dr. Beckett, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Well, you're welcome. Uh, we're kind of doing a little home and home here, which I love being able to be on your show a little bit and you get to be on my show. It's a truly an honor and a privilege to have you. So uh, appreciate you taking the time. Let's start today with, I mean, everybody knows who you are. I hope if they're watching this, I hope they know who you are. But what I'd love maybe to provide some insight on is the early days of Beckett Price Guide and and how you did that. And then how that transformed over the really years and even decades. Maybe tell that story as as much as you want to, however in depth you want to go. First of all, I think it's exciting. There's people in the industry in the last year that have no idea that 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 <laughs> uh, either I'm a person or even have any knowledge of anything because there's so many new people getting in. I find that really exciting. Um, 
and if you if you wind the clock back almost 50 years, you know, they back in 76, I had this idea. It was a freshly minted uh, PhD in statistics. And I thought, you know, there's there's no organization in the in uh, what cards are selling for. There were a lot of haves or not a, a few haves and a lot of have nots in terms of the knowledge. And so wanted to level a playing field. So the 76, I announced the first kind of national price survey of what cards were going for. I kind of had an idea myself. So I wasn't like blindly asking people, hey, I have no idea. No, I had a pretty good idea because I was one of the haves. But, uh, you know, got a lot of, got a lot more representation than I would have thought from all around the country, really active. Of course, I was hitting all the big shows anyway. So I made sure that I was in good relationship with a lot of the key dealers a lot of the key collectors. In fact, most of the people then were collectors slash dealers. They they did their collection. And so then that, uh, for a few years, I did that just as a, a free kind of a pamphlet that told what uh, cards generally were worth. And then in 79, launched the first book length, which was kind of every card and every set of the, of the key sets. And as you know, Mike, the hobby was almost, comp- well, we would consider it all vintage at, the, at, at that. It wasn't considered vintage right. at that point because it right. was probably even, even the sixties were too new. It was more the fifties and back and people really wanted to get the cards from the forties and the thirties and the T206s and stuff like that. So, and then in 84, starting the baseball magazine, that was a, a major step. And that's really what brought, you know, from me being a, not a lone ranger because I always had contributors, but uh, you know, once the company got rolling, that's when really things took off because I hired some really, as you mentioned, some fabulous teammates who really filled in my gaps. Everybody has talents and abilities, but nobody's good at everything. So I was really good at certain things and I was able to fill in gaps where I wasn't as good with some people that, uh, that far surpassed me in their, for example, design excellence. <laughs> right. Did, you know, as you just mentioned back in the day when you started, vintage wasn't vintage. How do you define vintage? What's, what's your current definition of what consider you consider a vintage card? We batted this around in the company a lot. And I think we kind of stopped at 1980, 79 or 80. You know, it, it kind of puts Wayne Gretzky right on the straddle. But within baseball, 80 is still the last year that you've got tops alone. Um, but 79, 73, last year of kind of series, there's, there's different definitions. But, um, you know, the other way to explain it, because I know you're a big PSA guy, is that um, anything, probably it's vintage if you don't expect it to be a 10 out of the pack. You know, the, the cards now, if you don't get a nine out of the pack, you're you're thinking, what did I do wrong? You know, the, the, this is terrible. But if you get an unopened pack from the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, you wouldn't expect to get all 10s. I mean, the right. spring was a problem. Uh, you know, probably edges are no peachy, but, but just saying it's so vintage to me has to do with condition and uh, the appreciation, the type of, you know, to, to be um, not baby boomers necessarily, but, you know, generally it's, it's people collecting their childhood and that's what they consider vintage. That's why some people consider the eighties 
to be still vintage because they're saying that was my childhood. And in theory, shouldn't vent think about classic cars, right? If a car is 30 years old, it becomes vintage. Like, shouldn't it be a rolling target of what vintage is defined as? I don't, I'm not saying it should. I'm just, I'm thinking in theory, that would make sense as, as a card gets to be a certain age, it becomes vintage. It's aged enough where it turns into vintage. Well, uh, that's excellent point uh, that that's a, you know, there there's, it depends on how you interpret the word vintage, but I like what you've done. The golden age doesn't move. The golden right. age is the golden age. And so I kind of think of vintage more as the golden age of, of, and so that's the way I look at it. But I, it, there's still that, that alternative that, that vintage is a moving target. And frankly, it has been because, you know, in the eighties, you, you weren't thinking that even the seventies were vintage. Yeah. And I think it's important. I think vintage is such a broad term. I, you know, we think pre-war, everybody knows that's pre-war. And then you have, you know, to me, the golden age of cardboard, which is really post right post-war 48 through, um, I call it 1980. I consider that the, the golden age era. And then, you just have different eras instead of just vintage or modern or ultra. I think those are too broad of just, you can just define an era of cardboard. And I think that's much more descriptive and someone can understand that easier to me. Well, it, it's not that confusing in the sense that when I, you know, the, when I was doing the, the IRL <laughs> real life dinners uh, over here that you mentioned I would do back to back, you know, Monday would be vintage and Tuesday would be modern. And without defining what that is, people self-selected. Sure. <laughs> Other than Rich Klein, who said, I can go either way. Right. <laughs> Some said he, they could go either way, but most of them have, they, they either tend toward modern or tend toward vintage and they self-select without worrying about the exact definition. Sure. And I, I don't think people should get hung up on that by any means, just self-define it, like you said. Um, everybody's going to have their own, you know, criteria that they use to, to put themselves in an era. But I, I guess I could call you, I, I just thought of a parallel of, of you and your legacy in the hobby. You're the Bill James of sports cards, right? You were, you were doing things ahead of their time. Bill James, of course, pioneered the sabermetrics, you know, in baseball. I think you pioneered price guides and and the idea of creating creating a level playing field as you said which i think is a great vision of what you were trying to do um how did that change for you throughout the 80s getting into the overproduced era let's say uh the hyper produced area era you got upper deck coming on the scene and score and you've already had donner's fleer uh tops the, the market became saturated how did you how did you zig and zag during that time? What changed for you in the business? Our, 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 our cups were running over, you know, and uh, Bill James is kind of a contemporary of mine. I remember when he was getting started and I have some of his early stuff and I actually had a fork in the road where I thought, you know, here I am, you know, working on a PhD in statistics. Do I want to go, you know, more sports statistics or, you know, but I'd always loved cards. And so it just was so obvious that there was a need for cards, but, uh, Bill James, uh, I have respect for the work he did. Again, I got all of his stuff. What the parallel is, that's what you're saying is that what happened to him and happened to me is that as you got into the eighties, it was, uh, we, we 
outstrip the ability for the human mind or the human piece of paper <laughs> or a, a physical spreadsheet or, or you know a, a handwritten tabulation to have any contribution to accuracy. The personal computer, you know, personal computers hadn't become you know omni available and with increasingly uh, powerful software and data analytic tools. Uh, his he, he would have never gotten to the next level, and 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 neither would a, would I have. And so, with with having uh, again the 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 early the early price guides were 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 not as computerized. The the later ones they, they wouldn't have been possible. So when you had all these different uh, manufacturers and sports and uh, the proliferation of uh, sets were big. You know, you just go back to the 50s, there weren't that many cards. And you could kind of keep right. them. You could almost know them in your head. As you got to the 80s, it became kind of incomprehensible without uh, modern uh, data aids. That's ironic that the, the card surge happened at the same time the technology was growing to allow for that. You know what I mean? It, it allowed for... It lowered the barriers to entry, you know, because... Sure. People don't understand how difficult it is to uh, make a card set. They need to take a picture and then you put some stats on the back. But there's design elements. And, and they also have no concept of the levels of approval that are required by the leagues and the players uh, associations to where just putting out a so you just put out the set, you're, you're, you're having to get approvals. And so all that stuff when it's done in the physical world, you're FedExing things back and forth and waiting, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the digitization of, of sports cards also, it would be included in that. There was more, more computerized, more digitized. Yeah, for sure. Going back to vintage and your, your just history in the hobby beyond what you did for Beckett sports and Beckett media. I know you're just a, you're a collector at heart, just like the rest of us. What are some of your favorite sets of all time? Just thinking baseball, what comes to mind when I say favorite sets? Well, what comes to mind? I'd say you know, fifty-six tops is probably my favorite set. It's the first card I ever got. Uh, Thirty-three Gaudi is near and dear because that was uh, the set that my dad started out collecting with. So, I mean, and I got a bunch of his Gaudis and still have them. Uh, so, I don't think I'll be trading them off anytime soon. I. I have traded a few at times and regretted it. <laughs> so I'd rather have, if my dad has a, a three condition, you know, I'd rather keep that than a five or a six. I'd sure. rather have an eight or a nine, but that's, uh, you know, all the years I was collecting and, and, uh, and, and going to all the key shows, I, I never saw Gowdies that were eights and nines. Now I maybe saw a few play balls that were sevens and eights. But uh, it's just amazing, you know, the, the true condition rarity. And, and I saw nice 50s cards. Um, so what else would there be? Let's see. Um, within baseball, that kind of brackets it. You know, 56 would be my favorite, 33 my dad's favorite. Um, I think 41 play ball is a little underrated. I think that the, the kind of pastel, uh, interesting colors, uh, I think, are nicer than – you know, 39 play ball, not very attractive. Do you think that uh, the 41 pinnacle? Do you think 35 diamond stars is underrated as a set? Uh, 
you know, I collected that by all variations. That's the kind of, again, I don't call that OCD. I call that, uh, <laughs> actually, I make a big distinction between the O and the C. I never obsessed about it, but I was compelled. <laughs> I had a compulsion to pick up a card if it was a different back or a different year or a different color, you know, from, um, from those uh, diamond stars. I just thought it was a very colorful, beautiful set. It's Art Deco. It's rep yeah. representative of the time. But my dad didn't have as many of those. My dad had 33 Gaudis, 34 Gaudis, uh, some 39 play balls, a bunch of 40 play balls, very few 41s, uh, a couple of heads ups, you know, not a couple, a couple of Gaudi black and whites, but mainly it was the major sets. Yeah, the 40 play ball to me was kind of groundbreaking. It's a fabulous set. Yeah. It's a fabulous set. It, I have all the Hall of Famers, and and what's great is it was kind of that first set that really incorporated older players and yeah. current players, right? And frowned upon at the time, you know. Well, kids you wonder if that was an afterthought. They're all in the higher series, right? And it's maybe they ran out of. Uh, they just wanted to fill it out. It's a great point, uh, and highly likely, right? And you have cards of Shoeless Joe Jackson, and you know you're missing some key names. There's no Ruth. There's no Gehrig. There's no Cobb, uh, but. The reality is there's 80 something Hall of Famers in that set, which is just unbelievable for the time. Uh, just and the nicknames that they put on there on the banners is fantastic. I just I really love that set. I think 41 play ball, the colorized version of 40 play ball essentially is very beautiful and very cool. But I think it's kind of uh, lame. Like that they just they used reused most of the pictures and well too small of a set maybe yeah and and they didn't incorporate the older players the the retired players in forty one play ball like they did in forty um so if those are your favorite sets what players from that era do you really enjoy their cards do you gravitate towards well in the thirties Ruth and Gehrig I, I probably am more a fan of Ruth and Gehrig than I was of um, of uh, Ty Cobb, for example, even though I think Ty Cobb was amazing. Hannes Wagner, same thing. And great, great players, uh, you know, dominant players of their era. Uh, DiMaggio is kind of in between for me. Uh, I actually was more of a National League fan. So Stan Musial, uh, maybe even more so than Ted Williams. But uh, and Clemente, obviously, was 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 my favorite player really of all time. From, from watching him play and living in the Pittsburgh area when I, in my, in some of my formative years. Is that why he is his 56 card is the first, or what card is on the first issue of Beckett 65 tops maybe. Yeah. The, uh, I had, uh, yeah, the, the first issue, it wasn't really picking any set year, I think, but I think I wanted a, a, um, a vertical card. Right. <laughs> Otherwise I would have done his rookie, but, um, and the Dale Murphy was a, you know, kind of an effort to reach out to uh, to, Current. to more modern cards. Although you think back in 79, 84, you know, those years, you know, even the fifties weren't as old as they seem now. For sure. Um, so Mantle, Mays, Aaron. Mantle, uh, Mantle, Mays and Aaron. Yeah. But, but probably in that order. Yeah. Mantle, then Mays, then Aaron. And so many probably would be above them in, in my heart, but Mantle, you know, in value is, you know, sets the pace. I do think that 
Mutual, as you talk about Stan Mutual, is criminally undervalued, underrated in the both in the sport and in the hobby. And I've learned that you can be baseball good and not necessarily hobby good, right? That's a distinction. Well, okay, Stan's problem, number one, too nice a guy maybe. <laughs> he wasn't controversial enough. Um, but, you know, when I went to the baseball uh, uh, Hall of Fame fantasy camp and I stepped up to the plate – and George Brett was my pitcher. He just, he almost, he, he didn't die laughing, but he just said, stand the man. Because my my baseball batting stance is stand the man musial. That's fantastic. When I grew up. And so what George Brett did, he turned around, he put the glove on his right hand and pitched to me left-handed. <laughs> and he actually is very ambidextrous. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, so he's throwing me curveballs on the outside corner. And, you know, it's umpire. You're uniformed up and all that stuff. And, you know, I got a I, – I had a uh, – I'd like to say it was a liner to right, but it may have been a dribbler. <laughs> but it got between the first baseman and the second baseman. And I, uh, I'm standing on first base and laughing at George Brett. Is that all you got? <laughs> right. That sounds like a wonderful experience, which leads me to my next question, which is in your decades long history in the hobby, are there ex some experiences that just stand out to you? People you got to meet or events you got to attend that like you're like standing around. All of us have that kid in us and we go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. Do you have any of those period uh, things that you can remember and recall? Uh, I'm trying to make a list of those and I haven't uh, finished it, but it certainly includes, I've been to every national and that was, that was pretty uh, amazing. Uh, not just the first one, but you know, the 91 national in Anaheim and, and the next one is always hopefully going to be the best one ever, which, which it actually might be. Uh, the Hawaii shows were huge uh, highlights. Uh, I missed the first one, but I made, all the other ones up until kind of I retired, but that, that was a great fun to go over there. Close friends with Kit Young, uh, setting up, uh, starting the first card show in Dallas back in the early seventies with my, my buddy Gervis Ford, having a card shop, you know, that was kind of in on the ground floor, do what he want. There weren't models for how to do it. So I like trying to be a pace setter. I like doing things that haven't been done yet. Uh, the price guides just, you know, burning the midnight oil, but seeing the results of your labor, those, those were fun. Every national's fun. You get to see people that you don't see that often. So card shows, um, you know, going up to Larry Fritch's and, and, and getting a personal tour there. Uh, some of these amazing, uh, you know, being, spending the day with Barry Halper at his house. Um, the, the first uh, Tops Archives auction, um, and, and, you know, getting a, you know, insider tour of the hall of fame in Cooperstown. Um, uh, and, and, and some amazing, not, not so much the players. I mean, I've always tried to the player treated players as regular guys, but, and they're not, <laughs> right. But they're, they're, but they're, but they are regular guys other than their, their amazing skill of in, in their sport. That's, that's probably, I mean, I'm, I'm fashioning my answer, you know, and I'll, have something in more detail. That's an excellent question, Mike. Thanks. So let's talk about the national for a second, because it's something that you obviously have been to every one of them. It's the hobby Super Bowl. We all know that we love it. 
I have a huge passion for it. I, my first national, most of my viewers know it was 1990 in the first one in Arlington. Uh, and I, I've never seen anything like it before and Oh, to go back. Right. And into those days and oh, I'd love to be that kid again with today's budget <laughs> to be able to just clean up. But the nationals changed obviously over the years. What do you think have been some positive things that have happened with the national in the time that you've been attending? Well, the three things that are national that weren't there, the first one is corporate presence, you know, with the card companies. And uh, that's generally been very positive. I think it really draws, helps draw a crowd. The autograph pavilion, which I think Jeff Rosenberg does a great job. And uh, that's, again, adds a lot of interest and enthusiasm and publicity to it. And then thirdly is kind of like the breaker pavilion and the, 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 the multimedia aspect of live broadcasting from the show, again, has brought some energy to it. So those are all, I mean, otherwise it'd be, I mean, the first one was just, was kind of like a vintage show, mostly vintage. Yeah. Uh, but now it's an everything show. You can get, you know, new, old, everything in between Memor memorabilia. The displays are fabulous. Again, it's hard to describe. But even if you've been to a bunch of them, the next one, you're always excited about, you know, what might be there that that uh, catches my eye that I've never seen before. I'm always overwhelmed that first day of the show. No matter how many I've been to, it doesn't matter. I go in and I go, oh, my goodness. And I do think that the National d distinguishes itself from just a card show, no matter how big it is, even as big as Dallas is today. It's still just a card show for the most part. Right. And. You can multiply the number of tables and yes, it can take up more square footage, but the reality is the national brings that mirror, that marriage of yes, there's car dealers and yes, all the auction houses have displays on stuff you've never seen before. And I remember holding a Babe Ruth game used bat at a national, you know, just things that I would never do at a card show that you get to do an experience at the national that's unique, that's uh, special. Forget about, we're not even talking about how great it is to have the annual family reunion of all your friends that you've made in the hobby that you may only see once a year at the national, but it's where everybody goes and everybody congregates and you get to rekindle friendships. You get to re, you know, tell great stories in person. And I think that makes the, that's what's so special. All of these things combined make the national a one of a kind event. Do you agree with that? I totally agree. No, it's it's a must event. And and like I said, the Hawaii show being in February or so, you know, was kind of not six months before, but almost six months before uh, was, uh, you know, would you, you know, I'll, I mean, it's not, a, it's a rhetorical question, Mike. Would you rather see your good friends once a year or twice a year? <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. right. So, uh, and it was a, a high concentration there as well. So, so those were good. And then, you know, back when I, and when I was single, you go way back, you know, I, you know, the regional show circuit back in the seventies, uh, you'd see a lot of the same guys. So you'd see some of these guys every month. So you'd know what they were looking for. You'd know what they were interested. You'd, 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 you'd know their kids because their kids would be under the table as uh, in a, in a, in a, in a car seat or, you know, in a little stroller thing. Next thing you know, they're 40 somethings. Right. Yeah. I'm one of those kids, right? I could be, I was one of those kids back in the day. Um, what do you think in terms of the national? 
can the national maintain its allure, you know, its mystique in the ever evolving world that we live in today? Uh, I'm hoping the answer is yes. I, I just was talking to John Brogy yesterday and, and I think he's one of the things he's really good at it. I think he's a good listener and he's got, uh, you know, he, he has a consistent team from year to year. They're getting feedback. He's circulating around talking to the dealers and the collectors and seeing what they want. So there, there have been some innovations that have been positive. And, um, you know, I'd like to see more seminars, but you, you can't make that happen. You can have seminars all you want, but if people would rather be on the show floor and do their meetings ad hoc, uh, they're going to do that. The, these digital and virtual things. I, I think that's, that's positive. But again, if you've got, you have a certain amount of real estate you want to cover, you know, which includes the people that are behind the booths that are kind of stuck there. Uh, and you've got a certain amount of time in the equation. It's if, if you divide, if you do the math and you've got six or 700 uh, tables and you've got uh, six or 700 minutes, <laughs> You know, you know, you can't spend a minute with each one. That's that's unsatisfying in both ways. There's some people I don't want to spend a minute with and some people I want to spend a whole lot more than a minute with. And so it's it's uh, it's a challenge, but it's a good challenge. There's a lot of people new to the hobby, as you and I both know, in the last couple of years. A lot of them, since we didn't have a show last year due to covid are going to be going to their first national. What advice do you give those people going for the first time, maybe to a national? I'm not sure that you could do keyword searches in podcasts or YouTube for the national sports collectors convention. But, you know, talking to John Brogy, he said, you know, there, it's amazing how people, uh, ask him questions as the as the general manager of the national that are questions that are readily available if you listen to any podcast or any any youtuber that's talking about the national you pick up on these things as preparation or if you went to the nscc website <laughs> and and looked up some of the faqs so hopefully there's enough uh, uh, podcasters and content creators that are trying to help with the preparation because like I said, you, there are people that have, that are clueless. They show up there and uh, you know, I try to bring a couple extra boxes or, you know, uh, you know, just what am I going to do if I get a bunch of cards? You know, what am I going to do? Uh, and I bring my podcasting uh, equipment. And uh, so I'm prepared, but I think a lot of people are not prepared. Uh, and, and budgetarily, I think it's really hard to be prepared because you don't know that you may see something that truly is the whale, you know, that's beyond your budget, but you're never going to see it again if you don't pull the trigger on uh, when you see it. In fact, Wednesday afternoon, not even Wednesday night, I mean, you, you better be if you're the first one there, you better pick it up because it it, it's not going to be available. What's your favorite day of the show? You know, Wednesday through Sunday. Is there a favorite day that you just really enjoy more than the others? Well, it's perverse, but I probably enjoy Sunday the best because it's it's more sedate. Uh, it's thinned out sometimes. Uh, dealers are willing to make uh, deals 
more so. And there's there's probably nothing. I mean, I in my younger days, I would have said Wednesday because I was more aggressive and I wanted to get stuff for my collection. And even when when we're running the company, it was it wasn't for my collection, but it was for you know to get type cards to show in the uh, almanacs and things like that, and really all the sports. So um, so Wednesday's best for that, but Sunday is just you're just kind of tired, but you're 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 pro- I'm probably still in the zone, and uh, and I've had a chance to case the place. And so all my obligations a lot of times are filled. And so Sunday I can be more of a free agent and pop back in on somebody that I want to visit with and or stop in on a table that I didn't give um, uh, full consideration to. And by then some of my hobby buddies, Rich looks out for me, Rob Varis looks out for me and says, hey, you need to go to this table and here's what's there or or this is that you didn't recognize him, but this is that guy that you haven't seen in 10 years. And uh, so that was, that was cool. I love that even as long as you've been in the hobby, that you still have things you're looking for. What's a card that you would love to add to your collection that you don't have currently that either you want to rebuy because you traded it away and regret it, or just want to add it because you had any sport, whatever sport. I probably don't answer that in a, in a great way because I'm really trying hard not to have an agenda, not to have a want list. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very free spirit when I come up to the table and I'm not looking to buy expensive cards. I have a lot of expensive cards and I also don't espouse the theory of if I sell an expensive card, then I'm going to take the money and put it into another expensive card, a de facto trade. When in reality, if you sell an expensive card and you have the money, there are many things to do with the money, including buying other cards. So I'm not, I'm trying to have less cards, Mike, and more strategic cards. And I have my display, but there's a lot more cards that are good cards that I don't have room to display. So right. to buy more cards to display, it needs to be really, really special. And, and uh, the, there's almost no card that I would want to pay, which wouldn't be true of 40 years ago. There's, I can't think of a card that I'd want to buy at double what I think it's worth. Right. There are many cards I'd be willing to buy if something was half what I think it's worth. You know, in other words, if I had a seven, a seven grade card that somebody's selling, and then they also have an eight grade of the card, uh, and I really only wanted a seven, but if the eight was the same price, I'd take the eight. For sure. I don't have any restrictions there. I don't have a minimum grade. Uh, like I said, I even I would take an authentic card if I thought it was unusual enough that I'm never going to see one. So I'm trying to have a, I'm I'm a recovering uh, organized aholic, linear aholic. You know, I I have structure aholic. I mean, right. it, it's what helped me be successful. It's the compulsivity, and I'm giving myself permission to be nonlinear and uh, and unstructured so when i go the national i'm going to come back with stuff i have no idea what i'm going to come back with and uh but it's going to be fun yeah there's two points i want to expound upon that you've touched on one is about the national and and i asked you about advice for newcomers and there are tons of guys myself included i'll be doing a national advice video as we get closer um 
and I have every year. So it's not, you could go back and it's going to be pretty much the same thing, but sadly people don't go back and search for things like that. Uh, and they should, they should, of course, but in fact, every podcaster, every YouTuber should be doing something like that. Not that it's public service, but it's what people are thinking about. Right. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm uh, kudos to you. And the other thing you said is that I love is the don't go into a show with an agenda. And that's something I try to encourage people. If you I, just at the Dallas show or the Fort Worth show that I went to recently, it's like I go in with no agenda. I don't know what I'm because I don't a I don't want to be set up for disappointment if for whatever reason I can't find that card or in a condition that I'm comfortable, whatever the bright price, you name it so many variables that go into buying a card. I think people think it's, it is linear. It's not. Think of all the variables that go into actually deciding to purchase a certain card for your collection. It's more than one, more than two. And so to go in with no agenda, I think leaves the, the world as your oyster. You have way more possibilities of what could happen. And that's exciting. That's invigorating. Um, you and I probably, you probably less now, but earlier in your life when you were more like me, it's, is I have tons of stuff I, I would love to buy and love to own. So I'm not going to have a problem finding something. Exactly. It, it's what will I find? And that hunt is significantly joyful if you let it be, if it stresses you out or whatever, that's, I think, I think you got another problem. If it's right. I, I just look forward to it. I look forward well, to that. If you went to a big show with the national or the Dallas show and all you did robotically was to go to every table and say, do you have any Juan Gonzalez cards? Right. Okay. Number one, if they say yes, it's most likely stuff you already have. Right. And, but most people are going to say no. Because he's in that in that in between era where he's not completely vintage and not modern, but he's a he was a great player, deserving of Hall of Fame consideration, and he's he's uh, but I mean that, that that's a waste. It's not a waste of your time, but that's what the internet's for and and search parameters, right? You know, and if somebody's got a, gr- a great collection and you meet up with them at the national, now that's cool. But to but to ask every dealer if they have when the 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 obvious answer is going to be no for a lot of them and then you come back and say and yet almost anything you might want you could find uh, if it's there you can't say if i go to the national if it doesn't exist at the national it's not there no because people don't bring certain kinds of things to the national good point they're readily available right a really obscure juan gonzalez thing um, your my guess is your eye would be tuned in to looking at the showcase. It's just like if there's a Clemente thing, it pops. It's almost like it's got a halo on it or it's got a spotlight on it. When you're scanning, I think you have to have that ability as a collector to be able to look at a table full of cards and your eye somehow is drawn to the things that, that are special to you. I totally agree that that's a sixth sense slash, you know, yeah superpower right. that if you're a collector long enough, you develop, I can go to a table and immediately yeah. know if I want to stay there longer right. than 10 seconds to scan the case. Right. And you do have to do that distinction, right? I think that's really important in terms of being efficient and utilizing, maximizing your time. But you also, I think if you go in, like you said, if you don't go in with an agenda, 
more of those things will pop out at you. If you're looking for an obscure Juan Gonzalez or you're some player collector, nothing wrong with being a player collector. I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering player collector, believe me. But you, you get such tunnel vision um, and it's a needle in a haystack versus if your agenda or your, your opportunity list might be larger of things you might consider, then that just opens up the possibilities even greater, right? You're setting yourself up for success. Right. Instead of disappointment, as if you could be disappointed going to the national. But if you had a narrow list of what you're looking for, you know, you could say, oh, I didn't get those. Instead of thinking, you know, it's half empty, half full. I mean, here's what I did get that I've never seen before. or I thought it was just this was just great. I mean, I had all those years where I went and I could look, I could touch, but I couldn't buy. You know, I was just observing and, and tallying uh, what things were selling for at the at the national. Well, now you know, enough grass has grown that you know, if I see something, I think it's a good deal. I can buy it and I can resell it if I want to, or I can put it up on my wall. Uh, you know, and occasionally I'll make a mistake and I, oh, I already had that. Well, I'm not making a huge mistake. And plus it's not a crime to have two of something. Right. Good card. For sure. Um, well, as we finish up here, Dr. Beckett, first of all, thank you for you know, being so generous with so much time, uh, tell people where they can find you if they don't, if they're living under a rock and don't know, you know, what you're doing nowadays, where they can hear your sports card insights show, follow you on Twitter. Et cetera. I, I use my full formal name just not to be stuffy, but just to distinguish because I'm no longer the you know owner of Beckett Media. You know, it's been 16 years, if you can believe it, that wow. I, I sold and then they sold to another group. But so Beckett Media has their own podcast. And I don't want to have any confusion. In fact, they're they're a sponsor of mine. But so it's just Dr. James Beckett Sports Card Insights. Try to do a daily 15 minutes or less with eclectic kind of topics. Again, I'm not trying to sensationalize anything. Um, you know, I don't have the five best tips or anything like that, which which is fine. I don't begrudge those who do. But uh, and I suppose people might listen if I did. But I, it's somewhat disingenuous. It's it's just personal preference. So I'm trying to give some principles, uh, you know, educate, but also entertain some of the good old days, but there's some good new days now too. So again, I don't have to do any one thing so I can be in the broad niche. And, uh, and that's been a lot of fun to have a real range of guests, uh, from younger people to older people and everything in between, you know, sports. Yeah. So it's sports card insights. Baseball is my first love, but sports card insights. It's been fun. So it's everywhere podcasts are. It's pretty much to this point, uh, all audio. You know, I may do some video if I can get some mentorship from you <laughs> and the other YouTubers that just are so great behind the camera. Well, happy to help. If, if I can at all, I would love to be a part of that. Seeing you do that, that would be, I'd love to see you on YouTube, but love your show. Uh, love the stories that you put in and the, and the people you make it about people and you make it about history and stories. And I think that is severely lacking in our modern, you know, social media world. I, I think, you know, well, 15, a, there's an audience for all of it, but still. 15 minutes sounds short, but if you're telling some stories, it isn't that short if, no, you're, if you're to the point. Now, if you go on for a couple hours, then I'm sure there's some great nuggets in there, but 
you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid having show notes, just, you know, it's a single topic or a single interview or, and uh, if you're interested, you can listen to it. And if you don't, you don't have to, and you can do some in the background, listen at one and a half speed. Right. So it doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, well, thanks so much for being a part of golden age of cardboard and yep, making, making your debut here. And, uh, yeah, I'll have you back if you'd like to come back. I'll I'd love it. I love it. Kindred spirit on the vintage. Like I said, I, I'm trying to, you know, across the waterfront, be uh, all things to all people. But uh, my first love is vintage baseball. Well, you came to the right place then. <laughs> golden uh, age. Golden age. Well, thanks again, Dr. Beckett. Thank you to everybody out there for watching, listening, wherever, if you're on YouTube or podcast, really appreciate it. And uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. We will catch you guys soon and keep collecting.